So every week we uh, post an event on the Bible app, and you can find us there this morning if you're a Bible app user. And um, we can follow along with today's scripture and some, a few uh, kind of highlights for, or bullet points from today's message. You may have come in today and you're like, wait, you're on again? And uh, so, yeah, it wasn't originally my Sunday. Dad was sick at the end of this week and said, you should probably be on standby for Sunday. And so when Saturday rolls around, I would prefer to either standby is an uncomfortable place to be. So I'm like, either I'm on or, or I'm not. And so we're like, you know what, let's just do it. So we swap things around. So if you're coming in expecting dad today, sorry to disappoint, uh, but we're, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm here today for the next couple hours. So yeah, here's what, ha- you're going to get to see what happens with minimal preparation. Okay. So you're like, oh wait, the rest of the time, what we hear is pre- preparedness. Yeah, I know. <laughs> So anyway, dad is here today, just wasn't uh, feeling up to uh, committing to being here today in, in preaching and all the prep that goes into that. So uh, we're just kind of giving him uh, a little rest today. So we are well into a series here on my Sundays. This is part seven this morning. Uh, a few weeks ago, we said that as you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, the account of Jesus' life and ministry, if you were to read through looking for the thing that Jesus talks about most, it would become crystal clear to you that what Jesus talks about most, what he is about all of the time, is simply the kingdom of God. So we started in Matthew chapter four, and where Jesus kind of arrives on the scene and launches his public ministry and announces that the kingdom of God is arriving. And since then, we've been in chapter 5 of Matthew, what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. I suggested we call it Jesus' manifesto for a whole new way of being human in the broken reality of the kingdom of God. It's really about God's value system. So we took some time to dig into the first 13 verses of Matthew chapter 5, what we call the Beatitudes. And then we talked about uh, Jesus' teaching where he says that we are the salt of the earth. And we talked about what that means for us. And we said that salt always makes a difference. And then we kind of unpacked verses 14, 15, 16 of Matthew 5, where Jesus says, you're the light of the world, which is kind of cool because in John, he says, I'm the light of the world. So it's kind of this neat partnership that we're in. And to cut to the chase, we said that God's purpose in your current circumstances is always to draw people's attention to our Father in heaven. So if you're sitting here wondering why, what is this, what's going on here, all this stuff that just kind of... the stuff that hangs over me, the stuff that I can't seem to wade through, this is the purpose. God's purpose in all of our current circumstances is to draw attention to our Father in heaven. Then last time, just last week, we talked about Jesus' take on the scripture. We said that Jesus really brought a fresh, new, creative way of reading the scripture in light of his coming. And we talked about how to reconcile the Old Testament with the New Testament. And if you weren't here last Sunday and if you've ever... Uh, take an issue with some of the stuff that you read in the Old Testament, because if you've, if you've read the Old Testament, you've probably taken issue with something you've read there, because you've, read, you've been reading along, and then you're like, what, wait, what, what? I really encourage you to go back to, go back to our, go onto our website, uh, go to our podcast, listen to that message again. Uh, it might offer you some freedom and maybe even some guidance in how to approach the scripture, especially uh, the Old Testament, which brings us to this morning. And honestly, we're at a place, 
in the series where it's 10, it's 10, 11 minutes after 10, I need to shorten up the review. So just so you know, we're, I, I, we're going to do Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I'm going to spend an hour reviewing and two minutes of sermon by the end of it. So today, we're getting into the next verses uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Before we do that, let's just pause and pray. Heavenly Father, we invite you uh, into our presence this morning, and, and we ask you to uh, just, just quiet our hearts and our minds. Come into this place in the middle of life with all of its stuff. So God, I pray that this would be a place, a bit of a kind of a refuge or a harbor where we can uh, just sit quietly and hear from you, whether that's through your word or through uh, worshiping together, or through conversations with one another. God, I pray that this would be a time where we can uh, hear a voice speaking to us for what you have for us, that we may more effectively uh, represent the kingdom of God. And we thank you in Jesus' name. So we left off last week with this haunting line in chapter 5, verse 20, which says that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, so these are the religious elite of the day, says you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And we said that essentially Jesus is looking for a different kind of righteousness, something other than righteousness that's based on behavior, something other than righteousness that focuses on externals, but a righteousness that emanates from a heart that has been transformed by Jesus, a heart whose driving motivation is love. And he said that without that kind of transformation, without that kind of righteousness, there's no way for you to experience this new reality of Jesus' kingdom. So from here... To the end of chapter 5, Jesus lays out six case studies of this new kind of righteousness. So I'm telling you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, it's a new kind of righteousness. Oh, and here are six examples, okay? So he's going to tell us and show us through these examples what this righteousness at a deeper level looks like, this righteousness that he's after. And I want to forewarn you, this is so nitty-gritty and human and honest. And first up on the docket is Jesus teaching on anger. So what does Jesus have to say about anger? Let's read some verses. Verse 21. This is Jesus speaking. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But how many of you have heard that? So you're familiar with that. You shouldn't murder. Okay, good. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, of course you know who you are, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Verse 25. Settle matters quickly with your adversary. Even one who's taking you to court, do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out till you've paid the last penny. So I don't know what you think uh, about this passage or what your response to Jesus' teaching is here, but I find it a little extreme. Anger, let's give it a definition. Anger is simply a spontaneous feeling that comes over our mind and our body when our will is thwarted, okay? When we don't get what we want. When somebody or something stops what we want to happen from happening. So there are all kinds of anger. There's good and bad anger. 
There's anger of a wounded ero, uh, a ego, a, a wounded ego. So it's like, you know, you know what that sounds like. How dare you say that to me? The anger of a narcissist, because you think you're the center of the universe, and you discover that you're not, or maybe someone implies that you're not. There's the anger over injustice, where we get angry. Listen, on behalf of those who have no voice, where there's oppression from those who, have, who are in power and in authority. There's anger over evil in the world. There's the, the anger that is the byproduct of a trigger from emotional pain in your childhood or your family of origin. So listen, by itself, anger is not necessarily sin. In fact, there are times when anger is the emotionally healthy, mature response to things, especially to evil. Jesus himself gets angry on more than one occasion. So I love this definition of, of Jesus' anger, which is his steady, unrelenting, uncompromising antagonism toward evil in all of its forms and manifestations. So that's healthy anger, a steady, unrelenting, uncompromising antagonism toward evil in all of its forms and manifestations. So healthy or not, playing with anger is a little bit like playing with fire. There's a fine line between anger and sin. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He says, be angry, but in your anger do not sin. So that's a healthy kind of anger. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. And a lot of people, I think, misread Jesus and think that he's saying, hey, never get angry. But we've got to pay close attention. Because Jesus' teaching here is just brilliant all through these chapters. And there are layers to what Jesus is doing. So layer one's pretty straightforward. Jesus is saying that murder comes from the place in the heart that we've all been to, the same place that an insult comes from, or the same place that a snide, disrespectful comment comes from, the same place that a sarcastic dig comes from. It all comes from the same place. It comes from a heart posture of anger, listen, and contempt for another. And Jesus is saying we need to eliminate that kind of anger from our lives because if we as humans were to eliminate this kind of anger we would then also eliminate everything that follows all the way up to murder right so the new testament writers pick up jesus teaching for example ephesians 4 the apostle paul says do not grieve the holy spirit of god with whom you're sealed for the day of redemption get rid of all bitterness rage and anger brawling and slander along with every form of malice be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ, uh, in Christ God has forgiven you. And Paul says this in Colossians 3, he says, But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Here's another one. The Apostle James in James 1 says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Because he says human anger does not produce the righteousness hmm, that God desires. So Jesus and the writers of the New Testament over and over make the point that we need to eliminate this kind of unhealthy, toxic anger. So I tell you what, I'm not even going to preach on these verses today. I'm not even going to teach on this today because I took an entire message in the, in the Emotionally Healthy series that ran from about a year ago to uh, September and I, talked, I took an entire morning to talk about anger. That was on July 7th. So since it's been less than a year since I taught on this passage, I'm going to refer you back to that teaching. So you can, again, 
can find it on the website. You can find it under the messages tab and go to July 1st. You can find it on our podcast. So look for, it said July 1st, July 7th. You can find it on July 7th on the Emotional Healthy series. So in that message, we talked about things like the cycle of anger and how to break the vicious cycle of anger. And we talked about pretty extensively about this kind of extreme scenario that Jesus lays out here of leaving your gift at the altar and going back to make things right with another person and, and how that was how that was received by his audience and what that meant. And we talked a little bit about making peace. And we talked more extensively about forgiveness and reconciliation in a couple of other messages in that Emotionally Healthy series, so you can check those out too. So anger is Jesus' case study number one, and that leads us to the next few verses. So if you think anger and forgiveness and reconciliation and other areas of emotional health are hard to talk about in the church setting on a Sunday morning, Buckle in because it's about to get really uncomfortable. For me, I don't know about you. So if you're thinking this is weird to listen to, it's weirder to have to say. So we're going to keep reading verse 27. You've heard that it was, told, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what do we do about that, Jesus? Well, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, verse 31, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So, nothing controversial in there at all, right? Can we acknowledge that? This is, this is tough. I'm not going to lie. Take a deep breath. We're going to work through this idea, this new way of being human in the kingdom of God that Jesus is presenting. Someone asked me a couple weeks ago when they kind of realized that it looked like I was going to work my way through the entire Sermon on the Mount. They're like, because uh, they'd read ahead, and they're like, you really going to teach on that? Are you really going to teach on all these verses in the Sermon on the Mount, even the ones about lust and adultery and divorce and remarriage? Are you really going to talk about that in church on a Sunday morning? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Do these things ever come up in our conversations between Sundays? Do they ever find their way into our lives between Sundays? Do they ever find their way into our conversations? Do they affect our everyday lives at all? Well, of course they do, and Jesus knew they would, so we're going to talk about it. And in honesty, um, I'm going to, I say we're going to talk about it, I'm going to talk about it, so you can listen if you'd like. We're talking about sexuality, the physical body, marriage, adultery, divorce. So what exactly does Jesus have to say on the subject? Well, let's, let's, let's dig into this. Verse 27. I'm going to reread what I just read. You've heard that it was said. So we've already established that that's what a rabbi said when he was about to quote from the scripture, from the Jewish scripture, what we call the Old Testament. You've heard that it was said, quote, you shall not commit adultery. So this is a quote from Exodus 20, verse 15. You're familiar with Exodus 20 because these are the big ones. This is number seven of the Ten Commandments. It's a command that's easy to read and think, okay, got that. But Jesus is about to kind of pull back the curtain and show the heart of God behind this command and every command. Verse 28. So you've heard it said, but I tell you, so here's a quote from the Old Testament. Here's what you think it means, but here's what it actually means. 
Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we're like, wait, what? Because at first glance, this sounds like an impossible idea. There's just no way. Here's Jesus raising the bar to a, to a level that's impossible. So the temptation is to either write Jesus' teaching off completely, and he's just out of touch with reality, or to circle down a whirlpool of guilt and shame, rather than take Jesus seriously as a brilliant teacher who knows exactly what he's talking about. So just to clarify, first, Jesus is not talking about an honest appreciation of beauty, okay? There are beautiful people in the world. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. Thanks, sir. You're all afraid to answer, but it's a good thing, okay? I mean, you may hate the beautiful people, but uh, it's a good thing. Here's how I know that. In Genesis 1, God saw all that he'd made, and behold, it was what? Good or even very good. That's God's word. So the word good in the Hebrew is in, in Genesis 1 is an aesthetic word. It has more to do with the appearance of something than anything else. So to, if appearance can be good, so to look at a woman or a man and to find them attractive, that's not a sin. That's normal. That's a normal function of being human. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. Secondly, he's not even talking about that momentary flash of sexual desire that comes when you see a beautiful woman or an attractive man. That's not a sin. That's temptation. Don't confuse the two. We can't, we can't control temptation, but we can influence it. You have a say in your temptation. I think it's uh, Martin Luther, I'd say Martin Luther for the win on this one in his kind of late Middle Ages commentary on this passage in, Ma in Matthew where he says, I cannot, you've heard this, I cannot keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can certainly keep it from making a nest in my hair. We have some control over what we're tempted by and what that scenario looks like. So what's Jesus talking about then? He's talking about when we look at someone in order to have gratification. We look at someone for our own gratification. That line that says, looks at a woman lustfully, is really slippery to translate into English because in English, the word look, and I think I have this on the, on the screen uh, stand, the word look has a wide semantic range. Look can mean to glance up at somebody, okay? Or it can mean to gaze longingly. So the English word that we have in our Bibles does not distinguish between the two, but the Greek does. And it's the latter that Jesus has in mind. This idea of a look that is not just noticing, but is a look that is gazing longingly. And the word lust is a bit of a, of a tricky word too, because it's kind of a religious word. It really means using the image of another person's body in order to get sexual gratification. That's what lust means. Guys, anyone who looks at a woman for the purpose of using her visual presence as a means of sexual fantasy or gratification. That's what we're talking about. See what Jesus is getting at? It's not the first look. It's not the initial flash of sexual desire. Even though you can have some influence over the potential for that, you can't always control every environment. It's what you do with that. It's what you do after that. 
it's the second look or the third look or how long you hold the look or how you go back and replay the scene in your imagination later. And rather than override your desire or your lust in the language of Jesus, instead you give into it and you cultivate it and you let it take root, listen, in your heart. And the problem here is not sexual desire. Jesus is the embodiment of creator God who created you, who created your body, who created all of your body, who made it with design and meaning and purpose. Like that is who Jesus is. So when we talk about function of the body and sexual desire, that's not the problem. The problem is when we turn other people who fit our cultural or personal definition of beauty into objects into things, into tinder for the fire of our sexual desire. When we objectify other people, when we do that, we dehumanize them in order to, to, to satisfy our sexual desire. And in doing so, we de dehumanize not only them, but ourselves. Because we kind of become more animal than human meaning we become ruled by our primal base appetites rather than in control of and ruling over our primal base desires, what the, Old, what the New Testament calls our flesh. This is more acute now than it's ever been in uh, this cultural moment, in particular in the Western world. We're really for the first time since way before even the time of Jesus, way before the birth of Christianity, way before Greece and Greek philosophy and before the Roman Empire, for the first time in the West as a culture, we no longer believe in moral knowledge. Moral knowledge is the idea that, is that just as there are natural laws to the universe, and we believe that there are, right? There are laws that govern things like gravity and relativity, because E equals MC squared, of course, and thermodynamics and uh, you know, mechanics and energy and all that. There, there are also moral and even relational laws to the universe. And over the last two to three hundred years out of the Enlightenment, morality, and with it religion, has moved from the realm of knowledge, where it was for thousands of years, whether you're a Christian or you're a Greek philosopher, it was in the realm of knowledge. Now that realm is reserved for science, and moral and spiritual knowledge has been moved to the realm of opinion and feeling, and bias, and your cultural upbringing, and your ethnic background, and your tradition, and whatever. And so it's easy to write it off. And what's left in the aftermath is a culture that no longer believes in anything close to an objective standard of good and evil. Every thriving culture in human history, East, West, Christian or not, has said, basic summary, if you want to live a good life, the most important thing is to become a good person. So the pursuit of virtue was always the driving pursuit of your life, at least if you were wise. But we live in a culture where the pursuit of virtue is no longer front and center. It's the pursuit of your own desires. And the lie at the heart of, culture, of our culture is that if you give in to your desire, if we just trust our feelings and follow our hearts, because you, know, you should be happy, if we give in to our desire, that somehow that's the road to happiness. Listen, this is why we needed Rabbi Jesus the promised one, this one sent from God to show up and show us and teach us that here's the roadmap. So go and break free from, the, from what the New Testament calls your flesh, from the desires that are out of sync and values and the, out of sync with the values of my kingdom. And so this is why I lean heavily into the teachings of Jesus here. I would argue that it's more important now 
than maybe ever before because underneath the objectification of others, and I'm going to just kind of narrow that down and talk specifically about the objectification of women, there's an even deeper problem that Jesus here calls adultery of the heart. What exactly is Jesus talking about? He's saying that the problem is deeper than we know. It's deeper than we recognize. He's saying, listen, nobody wakes up in the morning and has a fair in the afternoon like on accident. Like, oops, I, look, look, I can't believe it. I forgot, I missed my afternoon cup of coffee. I just had a bad day, I guess. No, that doesn't happen that way. If you back up the timeline before you ever get to an affair or a porn addiction or an emotional thing or whatever, it starts way back here with what Jesus was referring to as a second glance in that look to lust. And it does something on a heart level. We start to confuse love with lust, and the two are very different. Definition of love in the mind of Jesus is when you put the good of another ahead of your own. Where you will the good of another, whether it's your spouse or your enemy, or anybody in between. That's, that's what Jesus teaches. When you will the good of another, no matter the cost to you, no matter the sacrifice to you, whether it's emotional or relational or physical or financial cost, doesn't matter, you will the good of another ahead of your own. That's love. Lust, on the other hand, is selfish. It is narcissism in a sexual context. Love is an act of the, of the will. It's not just a feeling. You don't fall in love. You make a decision with the will, the most central element in your humanity, what separates being human from being animal. You make a decision to love another human being, in the case of marriage, with your whole person, mind and body. Lust is what happens when that will is drowned out by your primal desire for sex, by your flesh, and it's drowned out no matter the cost to other people or even to your own soul. Huge difference, right? So the reason Jesus takes such an extreme position is because he claims that the most important command in the Bible is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, that's your body. And the second's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Lust is the exact opposite of that. It is using another. It is using an image, an actual image or a mental image of someone you know or someone online or whatever as an object of your own personal sexual gratification. Here's the thing. Like everything Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, this is a heart problem. So next, from Jesus' perspective, what is the way out? And this is the thing I love about Jesus' teaching. No matter how difficult the teaching, how high the bar, how impossible it seems, there's always a way out. So if you pay close attention to verse 28, does he command not to lust? If you look at that, it's not a trick question. There's no command there. He doesn't say, do not lust. This passage is his interpretation of the command in the law that says do not commit adultery. So if we read this to say do not lust, it'd be really easy to write Jesus off as being out of touch because that's an impossible idea. So instead what he does is he offers as a command, as a new value in his kingdom, this new way of being human that's much more down to earth. So I think it's kind of like in the language of what about Bob, it's baby steps, right? It, no, what about Bob? No, what about Bob fans? Really? It must be some. Okay, a few of us. Okay, there you go. And I think, actually, this is getting a little bit heavy, so I think just for comic relief, is Bill Murray in the house? I think he is. 
Watch this. Baby steps? Baby steps. Baby steps. Baby steps. Oh, boy. Baby steps. Baby steps. Baby steps through the office. Baby steps out of the office. Very good. Baby steps to the hall. Baby steps to the elevator. Baby steps to the elevator. Baby step onto the elevator. Baby steps into the elevator. I'm in the elevator. All right, so thank you, Bob, for that. Appreciate that. We needed a little bit just to take a breath, I think. So it has nothing to do with anything. It really didn't. I just, um, I said the word, I wrote the words baby steps in my notes and made, I like squirrel and, uh, uh, like I should do a video clip, so it took way too long to edit that down. So, anyway, in the <laughs> in the next few verses, Jesus offers some baby steps. Okay, a few creative, practical steps to take toward the vision that Jesus has in mind for the kingdom of God. Let's read them, verse twenty-nine. If your right eye causes you to stumble, take out your pocket knife, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, take out your bigger pocket knife and cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And if you're new to the Bible, you're like, wait, what? Jesus is not teaching self-mutilation, okay? Jesus was known for using hyperbole, okay? It's hyperbole. It's for shock value, but it's serious. So what he's saying here is serious, and he's saying deal with it drastically, Deal drastically with lust at the first sign of it in your life. Cut it out. Don't shrug it off. Don't just think, you know, hey, boys will be boys. Come on, it's 2020. Dallas Willard talks about what he calls the gospel of sin management. There's none of that in Jesus' kingdom values. He's saying don't stick a Band-Aid on it and pop an Advil. You have to amputate. And if you don't amputate, remember, hyperbole, then you will stumble. And I love that language, that you will stumble it's not you will dive head first into. It's not you will make a decision. It's it, you will stumble. You will trip. You will fall. You will misstep into hell. On also, more accurately, Gehenna, and that's it's words that's often translated hell, and it's, it's really confusing. So don't think, you know, torture chamber for eternity. Think hell on earth, okay? This has nothing to do about the afterlife. So whether that takes on, your hell on earth takes on the form of an addiction, or the ability to actually experience faithfulness and intimacy with a real spouse, or just the crippling burden of guilt and shame, or the death of a marriage, or the collateral damage of an affair, it's hell on earth. And some of you know these things from experience, either from your own, or your mom or your dad, or your best friend. Some of you know it all too well. Remember, Jesus is calling us to a whole new way to be human and he's not calling us to something impossible. Difficult, yes, but not impossible. Here's the thing. It will cost you. It will cost you. And you're like, how much? Well, probably an arm and a leg. Maybe not literally, but sorry, that was, that's a terrible callback. Jesus is pretty much uh, up front with the cost of following him. He's pretty upfront about the cost of entering into his here but not yet here kingdom in this world. So what are the implications of this? Well, I think there, there are all kinds of implications. I'm going to give you a couple of examples, okay, the easy ones. So let's talk about our entertainment. 
It could mean that you don't go to a movie that all your friends and coworkers are seeing. It could mean that you don't see a movie that a bunch of your friends from church are seeing. It could mean you don't go back and watch Fifty Shades because you missed it the first time. Or you don't go back and watch, re-watch Game of Thrones because you feel like maybe you missed, it was a cultural phenomenon, you missed out on something. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, then you're fine, just let it go. But we're talking about pornography is what we're talking about. Listen, follower of Jesus, listen. We have no business, I'm just looking up there at the ceiling. We have no business being entertained by that. And I get it, I get it, okay? The arts are a gray area, I get it. There's debate and controversy and I get that. But if you think carefully about it, sexuality is not a gray area. And maybe you push back against this because it sounds a little bit like some time you spent in a church that was pretty legalistic. So it sounds like legalism. But does it? Or does it sound like wisdom? Like, what's the wise thing to do? Jesus is warning us against the ramifications of lust. So, what's the wise thing to do? It could mean that you don't have a smartphone. It could mean you don't have the password for the Wi-Fi in your own house. That your spouse gets to turn the Wi-Fi on and off. For sure, I mean, automatically, I mean, we understand your kids don't get to control the Wi-Fi, right? These are all grandparents that respond to me on that one. That's interesting. Because um, you have all your kids' logins, right? Right, good. For all their online accounts and social media and all that, right? Because you could be spying on them at any time and you can tell them that and it doesn't matter whether they like it or not. Listen, are we going to take the words of Jesus seriously or not? Or are we just going to shrug them off like, yeah, some people really need to hear that, Jesus. Or are we willing to pay whatever price, hopefully short of gouging our eyes out or cutting an arm off, maybe just inviting some accountability into our entertainment and into our activity online? For sure, this has significant ramifications for, uh, for your dating, if you're a single person. Because, I mean, it's a given that the person you're dating is a follower of Jesus. That's a given. And then, like, you're never alone in your apartment with your boyfriend or girlfriend because you need accountability. It could mean you don't go to certain places. It could mean you don't date a certain person. Or it could mean that you give up some time. It might cost you some time, but you find three or four other people to get together with on a regular basis for the purpose of accountability. We talk openly about what's going on in your relationships and your thought life and your sexuality. And yet it will cost you It'll cost you some time. It'll cost you some vulnerability. It will cost you the risk of being known. And if this sounds extreme to you, I just want to go, are we going to take the words of Jesus seriously or not? So, how are we doing? Feeling pretty good about coming to church this morning? Sorry about that. Can we go 10 more minutes? You got 10 more minutes of this in you? Good, because we're going to talk about divorce. I need a drink. Something stronger than water would be great. I'd like to do a little survey and find out how many people are divorced, remarried, and uh, some stories behind that would be great, just to lighten the mood. No, I'm not. Listen, this is a real-life issue, so let's talk about this, okay? If this was something that Jesus presented and it didn't, enter, it didn't really overlap into our lives, we would probably do some surface flyover and on to the next thing. This is where we live. So let's talk about this. 
oh man, and I knew that this was in these chapters in the Sermon on the Mount, and I committed to teaching through it anyway. So here we go. I'm going to make this fast. It's really interesting here that there's a flow to the Sermon on the Mount. And these topics are connected. Lust, and then he talks about divorce. So this is actually not as in-depth as you might think. But it's no surprise, I don't think, that the sexual liberation of the 60s was followed by the rise of no-fault divorce culture in the 70s, which was followed by breakdown of the family in the 80s, and the rise of hookup culture in the 90s, which was followed by a complete redefinition of sexuality in the early 2000s, right? It's a progression. My point is there's a sequence here. There's a flow of thought, even with Jesus' teaching, from lust to divorce. So let's uh, read a couple of verses. Verse 31, I think, yeah. It's been said, in other words, here's a quote, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now, I'm guessing most of you don't recognize that quote. You've, you recognize it because you've heard Jesus say it, but you may not know exactly what he's pulling from. Uh, it's what to you and to me is an obscure line in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So remember, Jesus is teaching in an oral culture, not a written culture. They weren't following along in a Bible. They didn't have the Bible app. They didn't even have a scroll in front of them, okay? Most of the men in the crowd would have memorized uh, all the Torah as a child, and then they would have passed it down to the girls in their family orally because the girls didn't get the formal tradition that the boys did. So the beauty was that Rabbi Jesus could quote one line, and everybody's familiar with it. So here's a line. Here's Deuteronomy chapter 24. Uh, this is what he's quoting from. So we're going way back to the Old Testament, to the Torah, to the law. Uh, verse 1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, remember that, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, <clears throat> and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, okay, now here comes the mother of all hypothetical scenarios, and her second husband dislikes her, okay, and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she's been defiled, whatever that means. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So that's in the Bible. Also, it isn't a command. It's case law. It's not, about, it's not about when divorce is okay. Because have you ever spent any time searching frantically through the Bible for a verse that would justify a decision that you are about to make or you've already made? We all do this. This is not about when divorce is okay or not. It's not about when remarriage is okay or not. This isn't even really about God's heart behind divorce. That's a different passage. This is about the aftermath of divorce and how to mitigate its devastating effect on women in ancient society. So the whole point is, if this goes down and it plays out like this, here's how you guard against the oppression of women. So Moses is saying you need to at least give her a document that says she's free to remarry. Because in the ancient Middle East, a man could reclaim his wife after a divorce up to five years later like she was his property. So Moses is like, no, that's not okay. Otherwise, she'll end up on the street or in prostitution or whatever. So by the time Jesus comes along, there's this raging debate over this one little phrase in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, something indecent. 
What exactly does Moses mean by something indecent? Most rabbis in the past had said, well, it means adultery. If your wife has an affair, here's how you divorce her, but you don't dishonor her. But here's a little history. About a generation before, uh, a couple generations before Jesus, there's this rock star rabbi by the name of Hillel. And he said, no, that's not what it means. What it means is for any reason at all. How convenient for us as men. And he came up with this idea called an any reason divorce. Sounds like no fault divorce today, right? He literally said, you can divorce your wife for any reason. You don't like her cooking? Great. You don't like how she looks anymore? Absolutely fine. You can divorce her for any reason at all. Her mother has finally, you're on your last nerve. She's out of here, done with this woman and her mother. Listen, doesn't, he's like, whatever. Something indecent. This exploded a couple generations before Jesus. So we think, of, we think of first century Israel as this conservative religious culture, and it was, but somehow at the same time it was also an easy divorce culture. And it, and it was definitely a patriarchal, patriarchal culture where women were less than. So by the time Jesus shows up, because of a misapplication of Deuteronomy 24, only men could divorce women, not the other way around. And they didn't even have to go to court. They could just throw her out. Here's a document, scribble something on a piece of whatever, and out you go. And the woman had no rights. And for the next five years, she kind of is a piece of property. So Jesus, like Moses, is not down with that, as you can imagine. So Jesus is about to weigh in on this debate that's been, that's been going on here for about 75 years at this point. So back in Matthew 5, stay with me through verse, this, uh, verse 32. He says, but I tell you, in other words, you've heard, but I'm going to tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I think it's important to, to acknowledge that what he's saying here is anyone who marries a divorced woman in this scenario commits adultery. So he's saying, listen, I know the popular interpretation now. Everybody's repeating what Hillel taught. And he was, you know, you thought he was like all that. But I tell you that, you know, like, yeah, he showed up and he's like, oh, all these things that Moses said. And you guys are all, you know, super conservative. But I'm telling you any reason. So something indecent, whatever that is, just whatever you want, fill out the thing, you know, give it to her, show her the door. It's all good. Jesus is saying, I tell you the right way to interpret the words something indecent in Matthew 24 is adultery. It's the only way to interpret it. And what he means by you make her the victim of adultery is if you divorce your wife, this is in first century uh, Israel under the Torah, okay? If you divorce your wife just because she's not pleasing to you anymore, you fell out of love, you moved on, you grew apart, you have irreconcilable differences or whatever. In Jesus' mind, that's adultery because that's making something else the object of your love and devotion, that, by definition, is adultery. To take the love that should be directed toward and placed on your spouse and instead placing it anywhere else. I know this is hard and it's uncomfortable and I'm committed to hearing the words of Jesus and I know you are too, so let's push through. Jesus is dealing with the core problem in the human condition. So now... Uh, people read this passage and it raises all sorts of questions about divorce and remarriage, especially if you read it at a face of value reading without understanding the greater context because it sounds like Jesus is saying you can only get divorced if your spouse has an affair and even then all remarriage is adultery. 
So people ask questions like, well, that's great, Jesus, but what about abuse? And what about physical abuse or sexual abuse or emotional abuse or verbal abuse? What about that? What about abandonment? What about all sorts of scenarios, this one and that one? What about that, Jesus? And those are great questions that I'm not going to get into this morning. And here's why. Because in Matthew 5, hear me, Jesus is not giving an in-depth, comprehensive teaching on divorce and remarriage. He does that later in Matthew, and I'll let you read ahead and find it. So people can get really confused when they think that Jesus is answering the question we all have, when is it okay for me to, have a, to get a divorce as a follower of Jesus? And his, his answer here is one line, only if your wife has an affair. But that's really not what's going on here. What's going on is Jesus is weighing in on a raging debate in his day over how to interpret Deuteronomy 24. And he's saying that Hillel's interpretation is way off. It doesn't mean for any reason. In that case, it means adultery. And in doing so, here's the point for this morning on this. He's, he's beating up on both lust and an easy divorce culture. We've got a couple of people going to check on that, so we're good. We're good. We're good. Can you stay here with me? Because there's a reason why we want to be distracted right now. So there are people out there, we're fine. Jesus' point is he's beating up on both lust and an easy divorce culture that favored men over women. Listen, that's just as relevant today as it's ever been. Divorce is typically far better for men than it is for women, even in our egalitarian society, that is true. And if you're thinking, well, it wasn't for me, that's called anecdotal evidence. It doesn't skew the numbers, what the numbers say is typical. So Jesus is dealing with that. And he's not okay with that at all. This is about you and me, listen, as followers of Jesus, as citizens in the kingdom of God. Jesus is calling his followers to a whole new view of marriage, where marriage is not a contract that you opt in where it makes you feel good. It's a covenant. It's a promise that you make for as long as you live. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' manifesto, God's value system, is all about heart posture. And the heart posture of a follower of Jesus is not finding an out for divorce or what is the letter of the law. For the follower of Jesus, the heart posture, listen, is always repentance and always reconciliation. The heart posture is always, how can I make this work? How can I love this person like I love myself? How can I honor this person as a human? That's the hard question. So, Thankfully, we're out of time. There's, there's so much to be said about these topics, you know, uh, lust and objectification and divorce and remarriage. And I know this is a heavy conversation, and I thank you for your patience. And this wasn't, I should have warned you before you came, but I didn't know I was doing this till Friday night. So thank you for not emailing me tomorrow. <laughs> At least wait till Tuesday. I would say wait until we've had a chance to, to upload the podcast and you can listen to it again before you send me your email. Then I welcome the conversation. So what do we do with this? 
here's where, I'm, here, here's where I am after sitting in this for a little while. And, and it's not like, yeah, I talked with mom about dad not you know, kind of being under the weather on Friday, but I've been working on this for about three weeks trying to figure out what to do with this. So I've been sitting in this for a while. Right now, what I'm most moved by as a man and as a leader in the church is the call of Jesus to honor women. That's kind of where I sit right now. So let me just talk to the guys in the room for a minute. I think there's a call for you as followers of Jesus, guys, to honor our sisters in the church, to honor their beauty, to not objectify them, definitely not to oppress them, or to leverage our cultural power in a way that is good for us but not for them, and to give them every opportunity to thrive in Jesus' kingdom. And to the women, I think even though Jesus' teaching is addressed primarily to the men, I think it's for all of us. I think it's a call to honor each other. So let's keep asking ourselves, is there a better story? Is there a better way to be human? I believe deeply that yes, there is. And it's the story that Jesus has called us to. It's brand new life in his kingdom, in the here and now life by his values. I think that's a much better story. I think it's far more compelling. I think it's good news. And the invitation of Jesus is always to repent and believe the good news and to come along with him into life in his kingdom. Let's pray together. While I pray, the band's going to come to the stage. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way it speaks into our everyday lives even when it's uncomfortable and awkward and a little bit painful. Thank you for the truth that we find there. Thank you for the invitation of Jesus to always lean into repentance and to lean into reconciliation. May that be our story. Where we need to repent, God, May each of us find ourselves in that place where that's exactly the action we take, where we repent. Where we need to reconcile when we do everything within our power to reconcile. And when it's all said and done, whatever things look like on the external, may the posture of our heart be pure. May it be a posture of love that is a reflection of the love we have for you and that you have poured on us. And we give you thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen.